Before we hear the reading of God's word and its preaching, let us pray again. Our God and Father, we pray, O Lord, that you would attend to our hearts, our hearing, and Lord, to all our being, so that we would be able to give our whole selves to you by the word that we hear from you. Father, we pray that we would be indeed like a a burnt offering, fully consumed, a fragrant aroma. Father, we pray that you would consecrate us unto your service. Grant, O Lord, that we, by what we hear today, would come to rest in your Son, Jesus Christ. And that we, Father, would have the courage to repudiate, to reject, to retreat, to abandon any other place that we have sought rest for our souls. Oh, gracious Lord, help us now, or else we cannot be helped. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God In Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word. A great challenge to how every one of you will understand and experience the love of God in this life. A great challenge to that will be the sufferings of this life. Suffering will take your understanding. It will take your experience of the love of God. And it will stretch it. It will pinch it. It will press it. It will punch it. It will tear it and throw it on the floor. And that can be a very good thing. Oh, it can be such a good thing. Because if our understanding and experience of the love of God is false and useless... We want it challenged. We want it defeated. Do you not? 
Suffering can be the very challenge you need to send you deeper into the cabinets, into the cupboards, the cupboards and cabinets of truth, to find the food your soul needs to make your experience of the love of God unconquerable in this life. When you see that suffering is giving you that gift, an experience of the love of God that is unconquerable in this life, then you don't despise suffering like you used to. You don't dread it like you used to. You don't run from it like you used to. You hear Paul for the first time, maybe, and you rejoice in your sufferings. Because by them, you have been taught to reach and lay hold of the love of God in the risen Christ. When King Nebuchadnezzar learned that three young men who had been taken captive from Jerusalem were refusing to worship his image, he tried to intimidate them. He had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego brought before him, and he said to them, If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It's Daniel 3, 15. But those young men were so strong in the love of God, they immediately answered Nebuchadnezzar, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Beloved, what was shining in the hearts of those young men? The very light of heaven was shining in the hearts of those young men. Is the light of heaven shining in your heart? The truth of God's love was shining in the hearts of those young men. The very truth that is shining on you from our text this morning. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 31. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. Right after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace, a fourth man appeared. His appearance was as a son of the gods, Daniel 3.25 says. He was the light of heaven, shining in their hearts even before they entered the furnace. Now that light was in the furnace, brighter than the flames. He suddenly appeared with them as they were thrown into death. The fourth man was so full of life in himself, he brought the three young men through death and wrath. Not a hair on their head was singed by fire. There was no smell of smoke on them. They had been given a foretaste of Christ and his resurrection. Yet they were given even more than that. They were given the embrace of the love of Jesus Christ. 
You see, he did not have to appear to protect them and deliver them. But he appeared to prove and to press his love upon them. And now by his spirit, he presses his love on every believing Christian. He presses that love on us, especially when we are suffering for him. Look at verse 31 of Romans 8. When Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? He is speaking of the things he was just teaching earlier in the chapter. And what are those things? They are the earthly sufferings of the Christian and the heavenly glory of the risen Christ. He was speaking of those things, very nicely condensed in verse 17 and 18 earlier. Paul is fully aware that a paradox exists in the experience of the Christian. A paradox is a seeming contradiction, but it is not. In this life, we suffer because of our faith and devotion to Christ, yet Christ himself the one for whom we suffer, has already obtained the highest glory. That's the paradox. If Christ has obtained glory, why does the Christian suffer? Has God's love failed us? Or has the Christian failed God? Or is there some other answer for our suffering? To answer this paradox with striking clarity... Paul, without any caution, without any embarrassment, he pushes all the sufferings of the Christian in this passage, he pushes them all out under the streetlight. He leaves none out of the light. In our text today, Paul does not try to soften or cover up any of the difficulties of being a Christian. In verse 31, he speaks of all those who might be against the Christian. In verse 33, he speaks of those who might bring a charge against the Christian. In verse 34, he speaks of those who might wish to condemn the Christian. In verse 35, he speaks of all kinds of oppression against Christians. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And then in verse 38 and 39, he speaks of all the forces of this old creation that is bound in futility, all those forces that might be at work against the Christian. Paul does not mean to leave any kind of suffering out. He means to include every possible sadness, every possible pain, every possible trouble, every possible misery that can be conceived of as touching the Christian, he includes it. He means to exclude nothing because there is not a single special suffering that Paul will allow to be outside of what he is about to say. Victim of pedophilia is not outside. Being raped five times is not outside. 
being shot by your own son is not outside what Paul is going to say. Nothing. All the suffering a Christian could experience is being brought into the frame. And here then is the paradox. Christ has obtained the highest glory, the name that is above every name. He has become obedient unto the point of death, and therefore he has been highly exalted, yes. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. He is seated at the right hand of God. Why then do Christians suffer? Why isn't the Christian experience in this life more heavily covered with Christ's glory? Shouldn't we Christians have the easiest life if our king is so glorious? If Christ has obtained glory, shouldn't we Christians be wealthy and healthy? If Christ has obtained glory, shouldn't we Christians be promoted and recognized and adored by other men? If Christ has obtained glory, shouldn't we Christians have all our friends and family encouraging us to live more for Christ and asking us how they can become Christians too? If Christ has obtained glory, shouldn't we Christians no longer have hard struggles with sin and the devil and the world? If Christ has obtained heavenly glory, don't our earthly sufferings prove we are doing something wrong? Don't they prove we have been separated from the love of God? Beloved, this is devilish teaching. It is from the pit of hell. Because if it is true, beloved... Not only then is so much of the word of God false, but if it is true, it means that Jesus Christ himself was cut off from God always because no one suffered more. Beloved, it is these false understandings of God's love that Paul is correcting in our passage. Was Christ, when he suffered, cut off from the love and power of God? No, not in the least. Jesus himself said in John ten seventeen, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The sufferings of Christ under obedience to the Father, were the very steps that brought him to glory. His sufferings testified that he did not belong to the world, but to God. Now your sufferings, because your faith and devotion to Christ, your sufferings testify the same thing, that you belong to God, not to this world. And that's why the world can bring you so much misery and suffering. 
Suffering did not separate Christ from God's love. Neither do your sufferings separate you from God's love in Christ. So let us understand. It is a colossal mistake. I tried to find a more dramatic adjective, but I couldn't. It is a colossal mistake to define the Christian experience in this life only by one's experiences in this life. The Christian experience in this life is to be defined by the experience of our head, Jesus Christ, because we are his body. What is really happening to us in this life is revealed by the person and work of Jesus Christ, for we are united to him. He took our humanity upon himself, and what he has done with our humanity in his own person is what he is now doing with our humanity in our person. In union with Christ, we are destined for the glory he has obtained as Savior and Lord, and that glory must come after suffering. In our chapter, verse 17, this apostle says, We are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering is baked into the cake for the Christian. Suffering is the road to glory for the Christian. Suffering is the path behind Christ for the Christian. There's no other way to glory but under a cross, which is an instrument of death. But there is glory. It is our inheritance. It is given to us by our head. We will come to that glory the same way he came to it, by suffering. So let us go back for a while and go through Paul's questions now. Because his questions are really how you are to read your experiences in this life. Not read them in the raw, but read them through the lens, through the spectacles, through the life of the person, Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, crucified and risen. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Beloved, if God is for you, no one can really be against you. Everything men might do to you because of your faith and devotion to Christ will not in the end go down on the records as against you. It cannot. It cannot. It's an impossibility. It's like saying two plus two is seven. Yes, it hurt. Yes, it caused you great sadness. Yes, you were feeling alone. Yes, you were scandalized. Yes, you even couldn't get out of bed for a couple days. Yes, no denying. But it cannot be against you. Even man's evil toward you will be turned into good for you by God himself, 
As John Chrysostom said in the 5th century, quote, If you take away the Christian's money, you have secured a reward for him. If you speak ill of the Christian, by the evil report, he gains fresh luster in God's sight. If you cast the Christian into starvation, the more will his glory and reward be. If you give the Christian over to death, you have unwittingly fashioned a crown of martyrdom on him. Nothing really can be done against the Christian. Even they that seem to devise mischief against them turn out to be serving them as if they were their benefactors. Close quote. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says this same point in two different ways in Romans 5. Having given us all we need to enter salvation, his own son, God will surely give us all we need to bear the suffering ordained for those the son has saved. Do you see his logic? In other words, if God has already given up for our salvation the very, the very best thing he has to give it, to give for it, his own son, and he gave his son to us and for us when we were still sinners and enemies before him, what could he possibly now withhold from us now that we are not enemies but children, forgiven, reconciled? There's nothing he could possibly withhold that we need. So that means, beloved, that when we are suffering It is not a sign of scarcity in the love of God toward us. It is not a sign of some change in him toward us. When we are suffering, our God is bringing to us the very graces that belong to the children of God. Will you have them? Will you have them on that platter? For even Jesus the Holy One who knew no sin, the scripture says, learned obedience by what he suffered. He learned in our humanity what it is to obey in a way that he had not needed to learn in his deity. Beloved, will you take these graces from him? Will you take these gifts Then he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This question answers itself. There is no one who can bring a charge of any meaning, of any force, of any persuasion against that gracious and loving action of God to choose a man, a woman, to choose a boy, a girl before the foundation of the world. To be his own. Paul speaks of the elect of God because in election, God has committed his everlasting love to the sinner before the creation of the world. Who can claw their way back into that eternal election? Whom God elects, God will call. Well, you can read all of it right there in Romans 29 through 30. Whom he has predestined, The chain of glory 
he will glorify. When God chooses a man, in his everlasting love of which he tells Jeremiah about, he is choosing to finish, not just begin. Because that love is everlasting, that electing love. How do I know if I am numbered among God's elect? We, it's not unlikely that somebody's maybe even struggling with that question today. It's a common question that comes up when we ever hear the word elect. I'm not going to do a whole sermon on it right now, but I'm just going to briefly, because I know that tender consciences can really get tangled up in this. We do not discover that we are numbered among God's elect by looking into the mysteries of God. We discover that we are numbered among God's elect by looking at what God has put plainly in the public, the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ for sinners. Simply put, I am of God's elect if I am unashamed of my confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and God and Savior of sinners. I am numbered among God's elect if I am unashamed to suffer for that confession. It's that simple. Praise God. He has chosen you. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? When God declares a man righteous because of the righteousness of his son being imputed to that man, to condemn that man now is to declare some fault in God's judgment. When God declares a man to be standing before him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because he is united by the Spirit to his son Jesus, who has the authority and the wisdom and the right to say God has erred in his court's declaration? There is none. Verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. We have to stop before the hyphen. This immediate phrase that follows, who, who is to condemn, Christ Jesus is the one who died, is Paul's careful apologetic, his defense of the sufficiency of Christ's death. It is not my Uncle Bob who died for my sins. It is not Moses who died for my sins, that Moses who struck the rock twice. It is not any son of Adam or Eve who has died for my sins. It is the Son of God who died. And if he in his death has answered for all the punishment and penalty owed to my sin, then who can condemn such a death? But this is wonderful. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The Lord Jesus Christ was arrested. He was brought before the court and he was declared guilty. 
And he was sentenced. And he was put away. What was he arrested for? Crimes against the Holy One. Crimes against the Creator God. Crimes against the one true and living God. He was arrested for crimes against God. But not his own. Yours. Mine. He was arrested and he was sentenced with the proper sentence of death. And he died and gave the court its due. But death could not hold him. Having no sin of his own, being the eternal son of God, he was raised up on the third day in a wonderful divine conspiracy of power and love, the Son was raised up without even seeing corruption. And he has ascended to the right hand of God where he sits upon the throne of God and intercedes, Paul says, for us. It is quite extraordinary that the apostles tell us that our Lord Jesus Christ is interceding for us. It is the purpose and will of God to have the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ continue even after the propitiation ministry of the cross. He propitiated for our sins once and for all in the shedding of his blood, which he carried behind the veil in the heavenly temple. But he continues this priestly ministry Not as if he has to plead with the Father to move the Father to be as nice as the Son. No, there is but one will in God. The triune God is all Redeemer, all willing that sinners be saved. But the Son is interceding. Theologians and scholars down through the history of the church have worked on this puzzle. Why does the Son continue in a ministry of pleading, interceding for the sinful church of God? Has not his blood satisfied all that God requires of sinners? Yes, it has. One very common answer to this puzzle is very much like what we saw when the fourth man entered the fiery furnace. That under the sovereign will of God, the Son is ordained to continue his priestly ministry of intercession until the last day to testify to the church of the zeal of his love, his priestly love. For him to be interceding means that he willingly and zealously has us upon his heart, has our needs upon his mind, is full of holy, active intentions for us, not in a retiring, far-away place, glad to be done. If we think about it a little bit, it quickly comes to our mind that the Lord Jesus Christ's present intercessions are just like his earthly intercessions. What did he tell Peter? Peter, Satan wishes to sift you like wheat. But I 
have prayed for you. When you are recovered, go to your brothers. Even the seven letters to the churches in Revelations 2 and 3. Who has sent those letters? The risen Christ. They are his priestly intercessions for his church. The Lord Jesus Christ has been raised to the right hand and he continues in a holy love and zeal for the care of his people, his body. Beloved, in verse 35, the apostle says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one shall. Which allows him to say what you and I need to hear so regularly. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Every one of those oppressive moves against the Christian, every one of them is unpredictable and unknowable as far as their depth, their duration, their design, how they will bring our day to an end or our year to an end. We cannot rule them. But the risen Christ rules them. He intercedes over all of them. All we have to know is what the Holy Spirit allows us to know by faith, that we cannot be separated from the love of Christ. That is the most wonderful and true thing about any of your sufferings. Has somebody given you hate mail? This will not separate me from the love of Christ. Has somebody tried to bust down your door like they did my neighbor the other night? This will not separate you from the love of Christ. Has somebody taken your life? It will not separate you from the love of Christ. In verse 36, the apostle quotes from Psalm 44. And in verse 36, he asks not a question, but by this psalm he is making a statement about the ordinary career of the Christian under the sun. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul isn't using that quote just to speak of the apostolic class, that they are all going to have a great deal of suffering, but us, we will have half of that. He's speaking of the whole church of God. As we remain in service to God, suffering is our calling. It is God's will for us to suffer, to be under a cross, because by it we testify that we are not seeking or finding in the world our soul's rest nor our life. Our soul's rest and life is in heaven, in Jesus Christ. And the Lord, in his great wisdom, will use all this suffering to give us a calling to testify that we indeed do rest and believe and hope in Jesus Christ. Now I'll read the final verses together. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
there's no other Bible verse, verses, than those I just read to you, that I have read more in public. Of all the nursing homes I have visited, of all the hospital bedsides I have attended, I have always read this passage. Beloved, this testifies to the soul with great simplicity and with great power that all the things that look like they are strong, that look like they are conquering us, that look like they are tearing us apart and separating us from our greatest treasure, this word of God who does not lie testifies to the soul in a wonderful way that we are not being conquered. We are not being separated. We are not losing the greatest treasure a human soul can possess, a human body can possess. And what is that greatest treasure? A loving Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you have raised your beloved son. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you have taken up your life again. Holy Spirit, we thank you and praise you for the power wrought in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that this same power, which will raise our mortal bodies from the grave, would right now be at work in our hearts, shining as heaven's light, so that we would not succumb to the dread and the fear of suffering. In fact, that we would be so filled with the light of the love of Christ that we would, Father, even press further into that obedience that belongs as the proper calling of the children of God. Father, we confess that our obedience, our pursuit of a holy life, is so often cut in half because we fear the suffering we anticipate it will require. Oh, gracious God, we pray that we would see the unconquerable love of Jesus Christ and become unconquerable by its light, that we would not be ashamed of him. Father, help us, for perhaps, Lord, it is this year that some of us shall die. Perhaps it is this year that hard things will come against some of us. Perhaps it is this year that some of our young people will will lose dear friends because of Christ. Perhaps, O Lord, it is this year that some of our children will feel for the first time like they are a stranger among playmates because of Christ. O gracious Lord, we pray that you would let us not get tangled up in why this is happening, but that we would, with, with haste and speed, cling to Christ and see that he indeed has not changed his disposition toward us. We confess, O God, that you called us, you chose us, fully aware of what we are, and there's nothing you can now discover about us that would make you disillusioned with us and change your mind about us and condemn us. 
Oh, Lord, let us rise up in this glorious love and grace and give it its proper praise. In Jesus' name, amen.